We've been preaching through the book of Exodus over the past several months. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 21. We'll beginning, be beginning in verse 33. So if you place your bulletin, your bulletin insert there in your Bible in Exodus chapter 21, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, our complimentary passage, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, hear God's word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest, a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 33, and continuing in the reading of God's word. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession... Whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. 
the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be put between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to his owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts, conform us to your will. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Please be seated. So children, how many of you love to ask mommy and daddy, what was it like when you were a little boy? What was it like when you were a little girl? Do you like stories? Do you like stories of how mom and dad lived life way back in the olden days, (laughs) before the internet? We like to hear those stories because they help us not just understand mommy better. They help us not just understand daddy better but they kind of help us understand ourselves a little bit better. When you hear about something mischievous that daddy did, and you go, oh yeah, that sounds just like my daddy. That sounds like something he would have done when he was a little boy. In fact, it sounds like something my brother did just the other day. Maybe my brother is just like my daddy. We like the stories of how our family got here. We like the stories of the past. So the children of Israel are camped on the plains of Moab. They're waiting to enter into the promised land. They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Their parents are the ones who came out of Egypt. Their parents have all died in the wilderness, and the children know that it's because their parents did not obey God when he told them to go into the promised land. For all their lives, they've been moving in the wilderness. And they know it's time to move when they see a great cloud rise up from the tabernacle and move forward. And they know they're supposed to follow that cloud. They know it's time to rest when they see that cloud come down, when they see that fire by night dwelling over the tabernacle, they know that they are living in the presence of God. They know that they are following where God is telling them to go. They know that God is protecting them from the enemies that are there in the wilderness. They know that God is providing them with food. They know that God is providing them with water. They know all of these things about God. But they don't know what God wants them to do. They don't know what it is that God wants them to do in obedience to Him. And so Moses gives them this great story. The story begins in Genesis with God creating the heavens and the earth. It continues through his calling of Abraham and a a unique people to be his own. It continues on through the great story of Joseph, the deliverer of his people when they went down to Egypt. And now they understand how it is that they became slaves. In Egypt, they know the story of God bringing the plagues, leading them through the Red Sea. And now they come to what for them is the most beautiful part of this entire story. 
This story, this portion of the story begins in chapter 18 of the book of Exodus, continues through the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, and up through Numbers chapter 9. It's the Mount Sinai, period. It's the period at the mountain, and you know it because of the Ten Commandments. But those Ten Commandments are sort of the the, the principles. They're the marriage covenant, where God takes Israel to himself to be his bride. It's the marriage covenant that God makes with Israel. And then he begins to say, okay, now here's how to live that marriage covenant. I'm not just telling you, be good. I'm telling you, here's how you live out obedience to the Ten Commandments. Last week, we looked at the first part of this section. This this section beginning in uh, chapter 20 and verse 22 and running through chapter 23 and verse 19 is known as the Book of the Covenant. This is the Book of the Covenant that God gives saying, here's how... The Ten Commandments are to be lived out in your life. Last week, we looked at the first part of this book of the covenant, and we saw particularly in economic situations, uh, people who cannot afford things, people who are in debt, how you are to treat those who are enslaved economically. And then we also saw how you're to treat conflicts, particularly conflicts between people that result in death. In what case, you know, if, if, if I lose my temper and I hit you really, really hard and you drop dead, is that the same thing as if I planned it, I waited around the corner for you, you came walking around the corner and then I hit you? And, That passage says, no, there's a difference between these two things. So that was last week. This week we come to this portion of the book of the covenant. And we see beginning in verse 23 of chapter 21 and going through verse 15 of chapter 22, laws regarding restitution, restoring, giving back what you've stolen, giving back what you've lost. Restitution. And then, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 22 and going through verse 9 of chapter 23, social justice. I find it interesting that so many people, when they're preaching through this book, through the book of Exodus, after chapter 20, they kind of go, you know what, let's start a new, a new sermon series. Because how interesting could this, you know, if your ox does this and it does that and your neighbor's donkey this and and all of that, you know, this this is just going to drag on forever and this is going to be very, very dry. And yet, certainly last week with slavery, we touched on a pretty important topic. We touched on a pretty controversial topic. And I would also say this week in terms of social justice. How do we treat one another? What is fair? What is Christ-like in the way that we treat each other and in the way that we treat those who are outside the church? And particularly, what is the framework by which we can obey 
God accordingly. Now again, to come back, young children, have you ever had mommy or daddy get upset with you for not doing something? Maybe you didn't wash the dishes right. Maybe you didn't load the dishwasher right. Maybe you didn't make your bed right. Maybe you didn't pick up your room right. Mommy and daddy get upset, right? That happens. Moms and dads do that. But do you ever fear, feel like it can be unfair that mommy or daddy didn't tell you to do something and they're upset with you because you didn't do it when they never told you to do it in the first place? You weren't told you were supposed to load the dishwasher. And all of a sudden, here comes dad around the corner going, what are you doing reading your book? What are you doing playing that game? You should have been loading the dishwasher. And what's your response? You didn't tell me to. (laughs) This isn't fair. You can't be upset with me. You never told me to load the dishwasher. So how is God going to be upset with the disobedience of his people if he never tells them what it is that he expects from them? And this is why this portion of the book, as much as we might look at it and say, yeah, now we're starting to get in the weeds. This is a little dull. This is an awful lot of weird, isolated things. As much as we might look at it and say, yeah, I wish we could go back to the cool stories about the plagues and the floods and the, and the seas opening and the Pharaoh's army drowning and all that wild, crazy, cool stuff. This is what's important. What does God expect from you as his people? How does he expect you to live? And so we see these two sections here, and we will look at them briefly and rapidly, I hope. These two sections, the first, restitution, and the second, social justice. And there are some principles that I want us to to see out of these two texts. The first is this 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 law concerning restitution beginning in chapter 21 and verse 33 and going down through chapter 22 and verse 15 when when these conflicts happen my ox butts your ox and kills him i dig a pit i didn't cover the pit up you loaned me something and somebody came and stole it i can't find it anymore all of these things. I steal something. I don't, have, I don't have something, and so I steal it from you. All of these things are things that happen in a broken world. Again, to bring it back to our children. Do you love your mommy and daddy? Sure. Do you love Jesus? I hope so. You should. Do you ever fuss with your brother or sister? Yeah? You gotta be honest, you do. 
Do you know that God's Word says, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, and so when mommy and daddy say, don't be yelling at your sister, don't be yelling at your brother, that you're disobeying. Yeah, you do. (laughs) And yet, there is a principle that you and I struggle with and struggle with obedience to. And so these conflicts do happen. This is real life. But a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to. The first we'll notice in verses 8 and 9 where someone has given his neighbor money or goods to keep safe. It's stolen from the man's house and you can't find who stole it. All right? So I loaned you $100 and I said, could you hang on to this for me? And suddenly, you show up and go, I have no idea what happened to $100. Somebody must have stolen it. Okay, so we got two options, right? One is somebody stole it. The other is you're lying about it. (laughs) You stole it, and you're telling me somebody else stole it. I have no idea. So the solution here, the thief cannot be found. The solution is, in verses 8 and 9, if the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox or a donkey, a sheep, cloak, or any kind of lost thing, of which someone says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Here's the principle that I want you to note here. God is intimately involved in the details of your life. I want you to let that sink in just a minute. That means the little details, the way that you speak to your wife, the way that you speak to your husband, the way that you speak to your brother, your sister, your parents, all those little details of life, God is involved. Now, If you've been around Reformed Christianity for any length of time, you might recognize the phrase Coram Deo. It means before the face of God. And it's a principle that we live our lives Coram Deo, in God's presence. And so the way that you and I speak to each other, the things that we do, men, on the internet... These are all quorum deo. And God is involved in all of these various aspects of our life. There's nothing in your your life that is set apart from God's attention. The other thing I want you to notice in all of these categories of of a thief comes, he steals, he doesn't steal, all, all these categories. Did you hear all that weird stuff about how to restore? In one place, you're supposed to give five oxen for one ox, four sheep for one sheep. In another place, you're supposed to pay back double. All of these various categories for how you and I are to restore what has either been stolen, lost, or damaged. The very principle of double restitution means that these laws are supposed to have a reigning in effect. 
It should be something that causes you to think twice before you do something. I need an ox. That guy's got an ox. He's not looking. I sure could grab that ox and take it back to my farm. And God's law says, if you do that, you've got to give him back five oxen. Well, if I need an ox to begin with, then I probably don't have five or six oxen standing around. And so, if I don't have five oxen, then I'm going to be sold into slavery. Did you hear all that in the reading? Here's the point. God's law exists to restrain sin. Not simply to tell you what the judgment is when you do sin. The reason that you and I study God's law, the reason that you and I want to know what God has for us to do, even in these penal codes, is so that we can restrain ourselves from sinning. God's law serves to pull us back from simply living as we would. And I can tell you, as... Someone who used to not be as old as I am today, and someone who used to have sisters who were younger than me, when my mom and dad went out on a date night, our house got a little crazy. Our house got a little wild, because I turned into a complete tyrant and expected my baby sisters, whom I was tasked with babysitting, to jump and skip to all my demands, and I was a horrible horrible, horrible brother. I'm, I'm just letting it right out there. I was a terrible human being when my parents went out on date nights. They never should have left me alone <laughs> with my sisters. My sisters are probably in therapy today for it. I was, I was not restrained. And I was not restrained because I believed that there were no consequences. Mom and dad, I would never act that way when mom and dad were around. They would call me out. They'd send me to my room. But when mom and dad weren't around, I had no restraints. Now that was wicked on my part. I should have been restrained. I'm not saying be that way. It was wicked on my part. But that's what God's law serves. To remind us that God is always present. He's present even in the details. And his word to us is to restrain. To restrain us from sin. And then the other thing that I'd like to draw your attention to in this issue of restitution is it does highlight that you and I bear responsibility for other people's stuff. Now, young people, let's say you've got a great Christmas present. You've got mom and dad bought you a... or yeah, we won't get into the mythical beings and whether they exist, but mom and dad found you under a tree somewhere, a really cool race car set. And so your brother, your sister says, hey, can I play with the race car set? And you go, okay, you can play with the race car set. And first thing they do is they pick up one of the race cars and they throw it against the wall to see if it bounces. And the race car shatters all over the wall. Now, if your brother or your sister just says, wow, must have been a bad race car, sorry for you, 
Are you going to be satisfied with that? No. You're going to say, hey, you broke my race car. (laughs) You need to give me a new race car. You need to make restitution. You need to make it right. We have a duty. We have a responsibility to care for other people's property as if it was our own. That's just basic not being a horrible person rules. And that's what God gives us here in these laws of restitution. How to restrain ourselves from breaking his law. An awareness that he is engaged in all the aspects of our life. And that we have a duty to love one another, respect one another enough that if we break something of theirs, we restore it. So much for restitution, let's move on to social justice, because none of us have any opinions on that. That is not a controversial topic at all. But social justice, beginning there in verse 22, uh, in, in chapter 22 and verse 16, and running to the end of our chapter. And again, just some, just some basic points that I want to draw your attention to. The first is, as you read through these laws of how we are to treat one another, what justice is in our relationships with one another, you notice a theme that is hit three different times in this section. Three different times this same theme is underscored or underlined. And that is this. You and I are absolutely no different from the outsider. There is no reason that you and I can say, well, you know, I don't have to treat that person as nicely as I have to treat the person in the church because after all, they are an outsider. I don't know who they are. They're not as important to me. God repeatedly says, remember, you were sojourners. Don't abuse the people who have no power. In fact, he goes, he goes so far as to be pretty harsh about it. He says, if you abuse the widow and the orphan, what's he going to do? I'm going to kill you with a sword, and your wife is going to be a widow, and your children are going to be orphans. He cares for the helpless. And he expects you and me to care for the helpless as well. And the basis of that care, the basis for why you and I are to care for the helpless is that you and I are helpless. You and I are sojourners. You and I have nothing that we bring to God. And so if God has cared for you, if He's provided for you, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you had no strength to draw near to Him, then, beloved, God says, you need to do the same. You need to care for those others. But God doesn't just simply say, I care for the widows and orphans. He goes on to demand that you and I identify ourselves with the helpless. And this is verses 21 to 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. 
You and I are to identify ourselves as helpless. You and I are to identify ourselves as strangers. You and I are to identify ourselves as those who are recipients of grace. Because if you know personally, and I'll I'll say this quickly, (laughs) I think this is one of the greatest dangers of the Christian faith. And particularly, it's one of the greatest dangers of young people who have grown up in a Christian home. Because the fact of the matter is, hopefully, if you've grown up in a Christian home, you probably don't know what it's like to be a homeless heroin addict. You probably don't know what it's like to be someone who makes her living off of the exploitation of other people. You don't know what it's like, thankfully, to to go deep into the pit, the ugliness of sin. And so when you see someone who is the homeless heroin addict, when you see someone who has wrecked their life so badly by their own ridiculous choices, Isn't there something in you that wants to turn away? That wants to point a finger? That wants to say, if you only would straighten up this, this, and this, then you'll be okay. God says you and I must identify ourselves. And based on that, that again, uh, at, the, at the close of our passage, 23, uh, 6 to 8, is we don't have two standards of justice. You don't take a bribe. You don't prefer the wealthy over the poor. There is equality. If we're going to put this in modern day language, and hear me carefully, the Christian church should not be about equity as we understand it in our society today. We are all men and women created in God's image. We have equal value as image bearers. We are all standing before the face of God. And the fact that my brother, my sister doesn't look just like me, doesn't think just like me, is irrelevant. If anything, it's relevant in the sense that if I see difference, if I respond differently on the basis of someone else's appearance or status or anything like that, I come under God's curse. I am under God's wrath and curse. That's exactly what he says there in verses 6 through 8. He says, I will not acquit the wicked. If you treat someone else differently based on their status, I will not let you go free. This close daily presence of God in the details of our lives boils down to this. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to reflect God's character, God's standards, not our own. There are things that personally offend me. There are things that I find offensive. Other people don't. 
And I can give you silly examples, cultural examples. Is it okay to put your feet on the coffee table? Some cultures, sure. Coffee table's nice and low, put your feet on it. Big deal. Other cultures, horrified. Oh my goodness, did you see it? <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible breach. There are things that are cultural and that you might do that I don't do or that I might do that you don't do. These cultural things are not the things that you and I are called to get worked up about. We are all called to be image bearers and to reflect that we are image bearers. And we're called specifically to reflect God's standards, not our own. In parenting, I had somebody ask me one time, this is a good, this is a good heart check for some of you who have young kids. Which upsets you more? Your eight-year-old being rambunctious, running through the house, and knocking over that beautiful lamp that you inherited from great-grandma, or your eight-year-old telling his mom, I hate you and I'm going to hold my breath till I die. Which one upsets you more? Sadly, I think for a lot of us, knocking over the irreplaceable heirloom and shattering it all over the floor, that's what gets us worked up. That's reflecting our own standards, our own values, the things that we see as important. Whereas the heart of a child in rebellion against his mother, we tend to kind of smirk at. Go, yeah, go ahead, hold your breath till you die. This will be fun to watch. We, we, we kind of smirk at that sort of stuff. Whereas that's not reflecting God's standard. The other point that I want to make, and we're going to wrap this up quickly, is one of the things that we see in both of these sections is that the motivation of the heart is what is essential to obedience. God keeps reminding them, you are sojourners. This is, this is a heart motivation. This, you can't just be reflecting the obedience to the letter without living to the best of your ability the actual character that God is calling you to. Final point. Final point. And this is with both of these categories, category of restitution and the category of social justice and how we treat one another. I'm borrowing this illustration from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. The heart of Christ. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek, I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, the attitude that God is calling for here is simply a reflection of Christ Jesus. Christ's attitude towards sinners is that of open arms. How often is our attitude towards sinners that of a pointed finger. This is not Christ towards you and me. This is not God's law 
towards you and me. God doesn't just sit there telling me, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong. But rather, Christ says, come. Come. And I'll give you rest. Take my burden upon it upon you and you'll find it easy. This is why Hebrews tells us that this same God who swore an oath and who gives us here the parameters for swearing an oath before Him is the one who said of Jesus Christ, you are the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so, beloved, as you see God's perfect law, as you see God's holy character, see your Savior. See what it is that you and I are called to be. See who it is that lives it perfectly. And rest yourself in Him. Now, this is hard to do. Because we live according to our own standards. We do what we think is right. We get upset with other people when they do what we think is wrong. But beloved, you come again and again to Christ. You ask Him to help you to reflect His holy character. Doing so out of thanksgiving for what Christ Jesus has done for you. He's made you righteous. He's made you holy. He's made you perfect in His sight. And so the very least that you and I can do is as poor mirrors that we are, clouded mirrors that we may be, the least that we can do is say, Lord, would you please let me reflect you? Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word. For it shows us not only the clarity of your holiness, but the clarity of our sin. And it shows us the clarity of our glorious Savior. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we have peace with you. And help us, Father, to live lives that reflect his peace, your character. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.